What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Serious for God Leaders Podcast. I'm Tim Alford, National Director of Serious for God and Volunteer Youth Leader at the Source Church, Malvern. I'm Dustin Rubio, Youth Pastor of Swansea City Church and Regional Leader of Wales and Southwest Midlands. And this is a conversation designed to help youth leaders connect, think, and grow. What's up, everybody? I'm Dustin Rubio, and this month's episode is another great session from Connect 2016. And if you're wondering what the heck is Connect, well, Connect is Serious for God's leadership conference for youth workers that takes place every year. If you want to know about it, get in contact with us. All the information to contact Serious for God or Tim, the national director, is at the end of this episode. Um, but this episode, this session, is brought to you by none other than that national director, Tim Alford. He's going to be talking about don't be a goat. I'm giving nothing away. What the heck does that have to do with youth work, leadership? Well, you have to listen to it. It's good. Full of so many good principles for ministry. Pass this on to someone else you know that's in youth work and enjoy. But as the team and I prepared uh, for Connect, and I, and I spoke to my national team and I said to them, you know, guys, do you, do, you, do you feel that I should be setting up that as a theme? Um, they just really released me to just hear from God and just to say um, whatever God had put on my heart. And I'm really, really glad that they did. Because as I've thought and as I've prayed and as I've sought God for this moment, I believe that God has placed on my heart, I get perhaps a little unconventionally, I, I, I guess, um, not something to do with a youth ministry topic specifically in terms of youth ministry theory or best practice and so on and so forth, but rather uh, to do my best to invest something in you as a leader. And here's why. I passionately believe that the best gift that you can give to your young people this year is, is not an excellent youth program or, or dynamic preaching or insightful Bible studies or great residentials, as good as those things are. I believe that the best gift that you can give to your young people is a model of the person you are praying they will become. And that's because leading is primarily about seeking to embody what you invite others to follow. Um, so, so Bill Hybels uh, says it this way. Leaders must never expect from others anything more than they're willing to deliver themselves. They should never expect higher levels of commitment, creativity, persistence, or patience than what they themselves manifest on a regular basis. If you cannot say, follow me to your followers and mean it, then you've got a problem, a big one. I agree. I, um, there was a young person, she was called Emma. She was in a youth group. She was asked uh, what she wanted from her youth leader. And I've shared this um, before, and I make no apologies for sharing it again, because what, how she answered uh, absolutely rocked my world. Because she didn't ask for her youth leader to be relevant or contemporary. She didn't ask for her youth leader to uh, arrange great programs or, or weekends away. She didn't even ask for them to be an engaging Bible teacher. Uh, this is what she said. I want you to be someone... I want to grow up like. I want you to step up and live by the Bible's standards. I want you to be inexplicably generous, unbelievably faithful, and radically committed. I want you to be a noticeably better person than my humanist teacher or my atheist doctor, than my Hindu next-door neighbor. I want you to sell all you have and give it to the poor. I want you not to worry about your health like you're afraid of dying. 
I want you to live like you actually believe in the God that you preach about. I don't, (laughs) this is what she said, I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be like Jesus. That's when I'll start listening. You see, we all understand that truth, don't we? That who we are speaks louder than what we say. Yet, are we not so quick to give more time to what we are doing for God than who we are becoming in God? And so that's why I really feel compelled in this opening session to to talk primarily about who we are becoming in God before later on uh, in the week we start to consider uh, what we are doing in our youth ministry. So, uh, if, you're, if you're taking notes and uh, you're looking for a, for a little title uh, to put at the top of your page, uh, this is it. Don't be a goat, uh, which is weird, granted, but all will become uh, clear as we move on. And if you've got your Bibles with you, which I hope that you do, then open up your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 25 uh, and verse... 14. Matthew 25, verse 14. I'm actually going to read it from the New King James Version, going a little bit old school. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've got some woos for the New King James. Love that. It's a, it's a parable, and it's a parable that you're all very familiar with, I'm sure, and it's the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, 14 says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to the one he gave five talents... And to another, he gave two, and to another, one. Doesn't seem particularly fair, does it? But each according to his own ability, and immediately went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded them and made another five talents. And likewise, he had received two, well, he also gained two more. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground, and he hid his Lord's money. After a long time... The Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought the other five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful of a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He who also had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered me two talents. Look, I've gained two more besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But then he who had received the one talent came and he said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. And I was afraid... I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered him, you wicked and you lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have in abundance. But for him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And they all lived happily 
ever after. Okay, so this is a, this is a parable that over the years God has uh, used to speak to me in, in really profound ways. And it's a parable, I think, that pr- primarily has to do with stewardship. Stewardship. And the first thing that I want us to note together from the story is that God does not distribute the gifts evenly. Have you ever noticed that? He does not distribute the gifts evenly. So I've got a little boy, uh, he's called Tobiah, and he's two now, and Christmas was really cool this year because it's the first kind of Christmas where he's like really got it, and he, he's been like loving the whole present thing, and he, he's been like, you know, seeing the presents under the tree, and he's like, is it for me? Can I have that one? In his cool little two-year-old voice, and um, so, so, so we're giving out the presents uh, on, on Christmas Day, and uh, we're, hand, we're handing them all out. And he's going, is it for me? Is it for me? And, 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 and so we give a present to my sister. She's called Liz. Give a present to my sister. And uh, Tobiah runs over to the present, uh, thinking that it's for him, runs over to grab it out of her hands. And I go, oh, Tobiah, Tobiah, uh, that one's for Auntie Liz. And he goes like this. And he just could not deal with it. He could not deal at all uh, with the distribution of the gifts which he perceived uh, to be uneven. Do you, have you ever noticed that God bestows his gifts abundantly but unevenly? And he makes no apologi- uh, apologies for it. He makes no excuses for it. He, he doesn't even offer an explanation of why. But here's the thing. I think that there's a good reason. And the reason... He offers no apologies for this uneven distribution is this, that God uses a different measuring stick for success than we do. So, so, so let me show you what, what, what I mean. We, we might see uh, a person right here, and this is a, a, a person with uh, four talents, okay? And we go, oh, yeah, we've, so, so they've got something about them. Great, yeah, doing, doing well. Um, but then over here, th- there might be a, a, a person with with 10 talents. And you see, our measuring stick for success is the same as the number of talents that the person has. So we look at the person with four talents. Well, okay, yeah, they're not doing too bad. They're a four-talent person. But hello, uh, Mr. Anointed over here. How charismatic, how, how gifted. Do we see how God is, is using them? This is a person who is successful in the kingdom of God, but that's not how God measures success. Because you see, it's possible that the ten-talent person started here with eight talents. And God would say, I entrusted you with eight. And, and wow, you, you've done something great. You've, you've multiplied it to ten. That is a 25% multiplication on what I entrusted you with. Yes, I prepared that maths earlier because I can't do it in the top of my head. <laughs> 25%, wow. But what if the person with four talents who we look at and we're not really that, you know, a bit nonplussed about, what if they started with one? Well, God's measuring stick for success says, oh my, are you kidding me? 400% multiplication. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Because you see, God measures multiplication, not destination. 
God measures multiplication and not destination. Can you tell me this? And I think I can prove the point. Have a look in the passage. Open your Bible now. What is the difference between the commendation that the, that the, uh, uh, the person who ends up with 10 talents and the person who ends up with four talents? What is the difference between the commendation that they get from their Lord? What's the difference? There's a big difference from four to 10, but what's the difference in between what the Lord says to them? Can anyone see it? Just shout it out. It's the same. It's exactly the same. Though one ends up with four and one ends up with ten, there is no difference in God's pleasure over their life. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Same verse, 21, 23. Exactly the same. Why? Because though what they end up with is vastly different, their level of multiplication is exactly the same. Both multiply by 100% because God measures multiplication, not destination. God is more concerned about where you're going than what you've got. So you may be someone and you feel like you've just got a little. You may be someone and you've been gifted with a lot. Either way, what God wants to see is a multiplication of the things that he's entrusted you with. It's multiplication, not destination. Okay, so I want to ask you a question and I want to ask you just to toss something over in your mind, have a conversation with the person next to you. What are the things that the talents in the story of the parable of the talents represent in your life? What, what, what could those things be? Have a conversation with the person next to you. What, what metaphorically could those times, what are the things that God has entrusted you with that he wants to see a multiplication in? Okay, just a quick, a, a quick conversation with the person next to you. Have this one nice and quick because we are running behind time. All right. Anyone got anything? Just shout it out. Just what, what might it represent? Shout it out nice and loud. Time. Good one. He's entrusted us with time. How do we shoot it? Multiply it. Shout it out. Table tennis. Okay. Left field, but fair enough. <laughs> what, what? Sorry. Children. He's entrusted you with family, with relationships. Yeah. Keep them coming. Character. Brilliant one. Just have a couple more. What did you come up with? Influence. influence. He's entrusted you with some influence. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, say that again, Eileen. Developing your potential, yeah, fantastic, Fant all, all good things. Okay, what I want to do, all of that is really helpful, really valid. I want to talk to you this afternoon, okay, about five stewardship areas that I believe uh, God has entrusted us with something where he wants to see a multiplication. It'd be really helpful if you could note these down because I am going to ask you to refer back to them in a bit. So I think the first one, and I guess that this is maybe kind of the most literal interpretation of the parable of the talents, is that God has entrusted us, yes, even youth workers, with 
some finance, okay. And how do we steward that finance well? Okay, well, I think that has to do with a few things. I think that has to do um, with like a, a, a regular tithing, right? That has to do, the Bible speaks into all of these things. This has to do with a generosity in our uh, giving. This has to do, Bible talks loads about this, with wise saving as well, doesn't it? Think, think through Proverbs, loads of stuff there. And this also has to do with an appropriate spending, so like a, a, a spending within our means, with, with, within, not beyond God's current level of provision for our lives. Now, I don't want to say too much about this uh, youth workers conference, because I know we don't have very much of it to steward, okay? Um, but, but let's just pause for a minute here to consider how important it is for us as youth workers in this culture of debt and finance deals and store cards and payday loans to model something that looks different for our young people in how we steward our finances. And and let's not make the mistake of somehow thinking this is not spiritual or separating it from our walk from God because Jesus spoke more about this stuff than anything else other than the kingdom of God. So we know we need to be stewarding and modeling well for our young people in how we steward our finances. But that's all I want to say about that for now. The second area that that I want to talk to you about, uh, our second stewardship area, uh, is our spiritual gifts. Okay, our spiritual gifts. And, and this has to do with a couple of things. And I think the first of those, you guys touched on this, is the idea of intentional, I'm trying to write really quickly, <laughs> intentional development. Okay, so you can jot that down, intentional development. What, what do I mean by that? This scripture instructs us to, 2 Timothy 1.6, fan into flame the gift of God that's within you. So let me ask you this question rhetorically. Could you now, in this moment, turn to the person next to you and tell them your top three spiritual gifts? I wonder, could you do that? Because if you don't know what they are, how can you be fanning them into flame? I believe that if we're intent on being good stewards of the gifts that God has entrusted us with, then the first step in that process is to make sure that we really know what they are. And so if you don't know what they are, can I encourage you, go away and do a spiritual gifts assessment. Go away and speak to somebody who, who really knows you well and ask them, what, what do you see in my life? Go away and, and, and do a Bible study on the spiritual gifts and see what resonates most with you. See, see those things that come uh, most naturally to But Whatever it takes, if you want to be a good steward of the gifts God has given you, make sure you do what it takes to discover what they are. If you do know what your spiritual gifts are, then consider this. How are you intentionally developing them? Are you reading around your area of spiritual gifts? Are you getting alongside people who, uh, who have the same uh, spiritual gifts as you, but have maybe journeyed a little bit further uh, with that gift that can advise you and help you? Are you intentionally uh, looking for opportunity to put them into practice? And can I tell you why this is so crucial for you and for me? Because it's when we discover who God has intentionally and deliberately made us to be and start living that out that we really come alive 
That's the, that's the place in your life where you wake up in the morning and you say, I was born to do this. When, when, you're, when you're living out your spiritual gifts. Um, and, and I believe it's when you'll be at your most fruitful. I believe it's when you'll be at your most passionate. I believe it's when your faith will be at the most contagious. And I believe it's when you will be the best for the young people God has entrusted to you when you discover who God has made you to be intentionally and deliberately and start to multiply those things for his glory. What the world needs is people who have come alive in God. And this is the place, friends, where we come alive. Okay, I think there's one other thing about stewarding our spiritual gifts that I want to say as well. And that's about uh, an investment in others. So I, um, I, I've got some... Uh, fantastic students here on the youth ministry program uh, uh, rise up at the Bible College and quite regularly I'll have um, kind of one-to-ones with these guys just to, to check up how they're doing and they kind of think that they're coming to kind of learn from me but what they don't know secretly is that I'm learning a whole load of stuff from them too and uh, I, I was having a one-to-one with one of our guys uh, just recently and he was saying um, that God had been speaking to the, him in this area and he, and he said he had a bit of a picture and it was a picture like this that God was like the water board and of course I knew it must have been from God because it involved water and all the pictures we have involved so I knew it was from God so God is like the water board and he said and he was like the tap and he said that the water and the things that God was pouring in into him just like the tap uh, you know the water is not for the tap is it the water is for the one who receives from its outpouring because you see when God gives us a gift it's not a gift for us it's a gift for others and a gift for his church And so if we are understanding and multiplying in the spiritual gifts that God has entrusted us with, but we're not selflessly investing them into the lives of others, then we're becoming spiritually fat. That's not the place where we live in the things that God has given us. It's when we invest the gifts that are not for us. They are gifts for others. Okay, third stewardship area I want to talk to you about is this area uh, surrounding opportunity. What opportunities has God entrusted us with? Colossians 4 verse 5 says, make the most of every opportunity, doesn't it? So, so I think part of this stewardship of our opportunity has to do with maximizing, getting the best out of the opportunities that he's entrusted us with. Um, but the thing I really want to talk to you about today is this, little, I've, I don't, I've come up just with this, this phrase, and I call it um, kind of opportunity discernment. Opportunity discernment. What do I mean by that? If my writing can catch up with my mouth. Okay, opportunity discernment. What I mean by that is this. Not every good opportunity is a God opportunity. You cannot do everything, and you certainly cannot do everything well. So so what that means is that the things we say no to are every bit as important as the things that we say yes to. And, And something I want to touch on later, friends, do you know it's selfish ambition that drives us to take on more than God has assigned to us? Recently, I I realized something um, which I'm sure is obvious to you, but I'm kind of a bit slow, so to me it was like a profound revelation. <laughs> and that's this. Every time you say yes to something new, you are saying no to something else. 
every time, every time you say yes to something new, you are saying no to something else. Because when you say yes to something, you do not suddenly get more hours in your day or more days in your week. Usually, though, the truth is that what we end up saying no to is very rarely existing uh, ministry or youth work. What we end up saying no to is our time with Jesus. What we end up saying no to is our families. What we end up saying no to is our rest and recovery and those replenishment streams that pour into our lives. So what's happening there is that when we quickly say yes to new opportunities, very often we're actually saying no to God's best for our lives, to his assignment for us. I really believe, friends, that where we end up in life has a direct correlation to what we are willing to say no to. And that's why you and I need good opportunity discernment. Okay, good. Hope that's helpful. Fourth area of, uh, of stewardship and of multiplication I want to talk to you about is this idea of how we steward our bodies. How we steward our bodies. Um, so that has to do with... Uh, that has to do with what, what we're eating, what we're putting into this temple of the Holy Spirit. That has to do with our, our sleep as well. Regular patterns of sleep. Do you know that your best hours of sleep are between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m.? So if you don't go to bed to 12, maybe half past 12, you've already missed an hour and a half of your, most, uh, your deepest and most recuperating sleep. Important kind of stewardship stuff. Uh, and I think it also has to do uh, with this idea of exercise. Um, not that you have to be a marathon runner or anything like that, but I read a, a study recently that was recently produced, um, uh, published rather, which showed that um, those who have uh, regular uh, rest and exercise patterns um, get about a 20% energy increase in every day, every week. 20%. That's like having an extra 1.4 days in your week. That's like having an extra 72.8 days in your year. <laughs> and so actually, I believe that how we steward the, the bodies that God has entrusted us with also has to do with how we're stewarding the opportunities that God has entrusted us with because it enables us to give more and better um, of ourselves. Um, I, I think it also has to do with um, our kind of sexual purity uh, although we're not going to say a lot about that now. Um, uh, and it also has to do with addiction as well. And I kind of guess that nobody here is addicted to crack cocaine. Maybe, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but what about nicotine? What about caffeine? I don't know about you, but I've got a Bible that says, I'll not be mastered by anything. And so I actually think that I've got a little bit of a problem if I get headaches when I miss my cups of coffee. Let's not make the mistake again, friends, of separating this from our walk with God as though because it's physical, it somehow makes it less spiritual because that's a Platonic dualism, not a Christian theology. I've got a Bible that says, honor God with your bodies. Okay, and then the last one, and this is the one that I, I really want to major on with you today, um, is time. Somebody said it, I think Tiva, you said it first off the bat. How are we stewarding and multiplying our time? I don't know about you, but by far my most precious commodity, way more so than finance or, or money, is time. 
And so I feel compelled, I'm intent on stewarding that, that well. And like the servants in the parable, uh, returning it to God in a way that has, has garnered a return. And so when we were sitting together at, at Connect last year, Matt Summerfield said something, which again, sounds so simple, but it really grabbed my attention. And he said this, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And it seems so simple, but it grabbed me because I thought, my life is the sum total of what I do each day. So how am I stewarding each day wisely? How am I stewarding that precious time that God has entrusted me with wisely? Well, I think it has to do uh, with a few things. Uh, how are we stewarding our, our work or ministry? How are we stewarding that wisely? What about rest? Are we observing a Sabbath? Um, is that a regular pattern in our lives? Uh, what about our uh, relationships, our relationships with God, uh, our relationships with our, our families, with our friends, with our loved ones? Are we stewarding those well? And, and what about time that we're killing or time that we're wasting? I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said that when you kill time, it has no resurrection. <laughs> and I think that's kind of really profound, is it? So something I'd like to say about stewarding our time wisely is this. Do not confuse motion with progress. Because fruitfulness and busyness are not the same thing. Have you ever had one of those days where you felt like you were really, really busy all the time, but you didn't really get anything done? <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. That's called hurry. And busyness migrates to hurry when we allow it to squeeze God out of our lives. How many know, friends, that it's in those busy seasons of life where your ministry commitments just keep coming and, 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 and challenges that we weren't expecting flare up and, and things going wrong at home. It's in the busy seasons of our lives that one of the first things we let go of is that daily time sitting at the feet of Jesus. But I want you to know this afternoon that when we lose our time with God, we lose. We lose. There's no victory in that. What do we lose? When we lose our time with God, the first thing we lose is our battles against sin. <laughs> here's something we all have in common. We're all in a battle against sin. And, and, and here's a simple equation for you. If we feed the spirit, it will overcome the flesh. But if we feed the flesh it will overcome the spirit. And what are our times at the feet of Jesus if not living water for the soul? If not food uh, for the spirit that, that comes as we, as we sit at his feet, as we spend time in his word and, and allow it to do that washing work uh, in our lives. When we lose our time with God, we lose our battles against sin. But you know what else we lose? Is we lose our joy. We lose our joy. Um, Bill Hybel said this, prayerless people cut themselves off from God's prevailing power. And the frequent result is that familiar feeling of being overwhelmed, overrun, beaten down, pushed around, and defeated. Ever feel like that when you lost your time with God? Because when we lose our time with God, friends, those things that we used to do that were a joy start to become a duty. Because when we lose our time with God, we lose our joy. And, and the last thing I'd say about this is that when we lose our time with God, we lose our identity. Why is that? 
It's because the primary outcome of my daily time with Jesus is it does this, it centers my life around him. But when I lose that, and my life is no longer centered around Jesus, I begin to define myself by my accomplishments. Or I define myself by my physical appearance, or by my title, or by my important friends. And then when I lose those, I lose my identity. So when we lose our time with God, friends, we lose. We lose. Could I ask you to reflect on this question uh, this afternoon? Are you so busy doing work for God that you forgot what it means to really know God? Have Have you slowly arrived at that place where doing work for him has actually become a substitute for knowing him? Are you at a place in your life where seeking God seems like a harder thing to do than to do more work for him? Have you actually come to think that service for Jesus is friendship with him? Because friends, doing things for God and knowing God is not the same thing. Is it me? Or do you have those bits in the Bible which, if you were the editor, you would cut them out? Is that just me? It's just me, isn't it? I'm going to get the sack. Okay, it's just me. But I've got to be honest with you. I've got a few bits in the Bible when I read them and I think, it would be easier for me if that just wasn't there. Is, it, is there anyone else? Okay, yeah, okay. I see a few, I see a few nods now. And, and I was reading my Bible recently and spending some time with Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit just spoke to me through one of those passages that I've always been a little bit uncomfortable with and it spoke to me uh, uh, in, in a fresh way and, and, and it was this passage from Matthew 7 where Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father is, who is in heaven. Listen to this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Friends, do you know that it is possible to run our youth programs, to plan our sessions, to pray for our young people, to preach our servants, and to plan our events all in his name, but never really know him? Have we confused activity for intimacy? Because there is no shortcut to relationship with Jesus that bypasses time in his presence. So I really want to encourage you, friends, from the bottom of my heart, that if you do one thing, one thing as a result of coming to Connect this this year, may it be that you ruthlessly carve out time in your schedule to do whatever it takes to sit at the feet of Jesus every single day. And, And not to plan a Bible study or to write a talk or to produce something, but just to know Jesus. Because I really believe it, This one thing will have a more profound effect on your youth ministry than any issue of of best practice that you might learn over the course of this week. Why? Because it's in the place of intimacy with Jesus that our busyness turns into fruitfulness. Because it's when we're close to him that our character goes deeper and our ideas seem fresher and our spirit is softer and our courage increases and our leadership is stronger and our passion is more contagious. 
And it's because the best gift that you can give to your young people this year is a model of the person that you are praying that they will become. And so I want to ask you to do a little bit of self-reflection, if that's okay. Maybe, Joe, you've just got a, a chilled-out track you can put on for us for just a minute. And, and here's what I'd like to ask you to do, and it's something I hope will help you in your discipleship, is I want you just to reflect on these five stewardship areas that we've put up on the, on the charts here. And I want to ask you to score yourself out of 10 on each of these stewardship areas, okay? How, how are you stewarding your finance, your spiritual gifts, your opportunities, your body, your time well? Out, out of 10. And then I'd love, if you're, if you're comfortable to, and if you're happy to to, to, to share that with the person next to you. Share what was your top score, okay? What, what is the thing that you're stewarding and multiplying and returning to God with interest in the, in the best way? And how are you doing that? And, and give the person next to you some insight into the rhythms you've built into your life to help you to do that well. And then, if you're willing, and you know, only if you're comfortable, share with the person next to you that area of stewardship, which... Maybe you're not hitting it at the moment. And this year, you're going to make some deliberate investment so that you can multiply that area of return and give it back to God. So just take some time. Joe, maybe hit a trap for us. Have a, just a few moments of reflection. Give yourself a, a little discipleship uh, kind of score in that way. Share with the person next to your top, your bottom, and why. Go for it. Yeah, maybe just start to have that conversation with that person next to you and if you're comfortable, share what you think you're stewarding and multiplying well. What you want to, and how you want to see an improvement in some of those areas this time around, this year, 2016.
Okay. Just a little conscious of the time. I know we started late, so if you want to start to maybe wrap up some of those conversations, that would be really helpful. Fantastic. I'm sure there's some more digging around and some more kind of soul searching and conversation to happen there. Uh, maybe you'll pick that up again during the coffee break. So if you can wrap up those conversations, we'll press on. That would be really helpful. Okay, let's remind ourselves of what the master, what the Lord says to those servants who steward the things well that, that they were entrusted with. It goes like this. It's, it's, it's the words that we all want to hear from our heavenly father. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You're faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And it's that last line that I just want us to think about now for a few moments. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Because like we said earlier, when we get that understanding of the things that God has entrusted us with, and when we start to serve him and to grow and multiply in those areas, something absolutely wonderful happens. We enter into the joy of our Lord. Our lives are enriched. And we're filled with a sense of purpose and a sense of fulfillment. And we're inspired to wake up that morning and give our very best to that day. And, 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 and like I said earlier, to say to ourselves that I was born to do this and there's nothing like it. The joy of the Lord. The thing is, the opposite is also true. And it happens when we start to say things like, hang on a minute, she's, she's got ten talents. Why have I only got five it happens when we start to say, how come he gets that opportunity and that opportunity, but, but not me? How come she's got so many people in a youth ministry? I've been slogging my guts out for years with these few. How come I have to work so hard at prepping my talks and they just show up and knock it out of the park every time? How, how's that fair? And as we start to look longingly at somebody else's bag of talents, do you know what we do? We begin to journey outside of our assigned place in God. We're trying to run somebody else's race. We're trying to grow in somebody else's gifts. We're trying to become someone we're not. And do you know that in doing that, we will always move from joy to discontentment. We will always move from fulfillment to frustration. I wonder if you've ever been there. I wonder if you've ever tried to be someone you're not. I want to introduce you to someone who did try to be someone they're not. His name was Thomas Thwaites, and he tried to be someone he wasn't only. The thing is, he tried to become a goat, which was interesting. What he did was he commissioned um, prosthetics for himself so that he could walk on all fours. He consulted with behavioral experts on goats, and he even arranged to live in the Swiss Alps as a goat. Um, and the best bit, in my opinion, is that he cons considered um, constructing an artificial rumen so that he would be able to digest grass. Interesting, uh, 
isn't it? Needless to say that Tom's uh, attempt to live as a goat uh, didn't quite work out uh, <laughs> as he'd hoped. Uh, the, the prosthetics placed a, a painful of, uh, uh, amount uh, of pressure on his limbs as he tried to go down hills. The, the rocky terrain in the Alps was uh, impossible for him to navigate. It was, it was much too cold and much too wet for him to be able to sleep outside with the goats, so he had to uh, set up a, a, a camp every night. And of course, there was the small matter of trying to convince his uh, new found goat friends that this uh, odd-looking guy in prosthetics and a helmet was in fact uh, a goat. But Tom is yet to be deterred, friends, because he says this, Tom, he says, I think it's a bit of an ongoing thing because it seems so tantalizingly close to be able to gallop and just be free and, and just eat grass. I'm not sure how close I'll get in reality, but in my mind, my fantasy, I'm just one prototype away. Fair enough, Tom. Okay. <laughs> but when we try to be something other than God uniquely created us to be, it will always steal our joy and lead to frustration and discontentment. Because though it seems so tantalizingly close, you can never be a goat. Zach Esween, in his, in his book, uh, The Imperfect Pastor, says this, when you try to hold on that gifts, to gifts that God did not give you, you lose your quiet and increase your spiritual turmoil as you restlessly desire to take up different spiritual pursuits from your own. But this disquiet is deadly danger. And it's this deadly danger that I want us to think about together now because this deadly danger has a name. Um, it's, I believe, one of the last great taboos in ministry, but it's something that lurks in the, in the dark recesses of all of our hearts. This deadly danger is called selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is the desire to do large things in famous ways as fast as you can. Selfish ambition is the lie that tells us to be significant is the same as to be known. But selfish ambition will consistently cloud the clarity of God's call over your life. It will take you away from God's life-giving assignment for your life and drive you into a ceaseless striving for things which will never fulfill you. Selfish ambition will cause us to look on the blessings that God has bestowed on others and experience pangs of jealousy rather than waves of joy. Selfish ambition will motivate us to say yes to opportunities because they are visible and not because they are valuable. And selfish ambition means that we are motivated more by the praise and the plaudits of our peers than by the secret and unseen smiles of God. And you know that this same selfish ambition is cultivated and nurtures and grows in the soils of comparison you ever notice that you and I every day, you know, intentionally uh, uh, engage in a highlight reel of everybody else's life? Or Twitter, <laughs> as it's otherwise known. By the way, have you ever noticed that everybody on Facebook is better looking and more successful and happier than you are? <laughs> have you ever noticed that? It's kind of weird how that works out, isn't it? Have you noticed that they've got bigger youth groups and better ideas and deeper revelations than you? Have you noticed that they've got better marriages and they've got more friends and they've got better behaved kids? Have you ever noticed that they're more passionate? 
that they get better opportunities, that they're more gifted, that they're more inspiring than you. They go on better holidays as well. I don't know if you've noticed that. And I wonder if you ever feel it, those pangs of discontentment, the feeling that you're lagging behind everybody else, that unhealthy pull into the fast lane of ceaseless striving for tweet-worthy successes. You know, I was spending some time with Jesus recently and the Holy Spirit. I had one of those Holy Spirit moments, I'm sure that you've had them, which was both amazing and awful at the same time. Have you had had those moments? And it was truly one of those moments because I was spending some time with God and I was reading and the Holy Spirit said this to me. He said, Tim, are you having successes without being successful? And it was like, oh, because I knew absolutely what he meant. Was I having successes as man would see it? Maybe, but could I really be successful as Jesus would see it? You know, I could point to maybe events that were growing and budgets that were balanced and funds that were raised and, and ministries that were launched, but am I more in love with Jesus than when I started? Do I know him better? Do I hear his voice more clearly now? Do I feel more aware of his presence? Am I more confident of his work in and through my life? Am I more inclined to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Am I more passionate now to see his kingdom grow than ever before? Am I growing in his likeness? Am I more full of joy? Am I more full of peace than I've ever been before? Am I investing in the lives of others for their sake alone when it has no comeback on me? Is my faith more infectious? Is it more contagious than it's ever been before? And as I sat in the presence of Jesus, I need to confess to you that the answer to many of those questions was no. I was having successes, but in many ways not being successful. Could I ask you, to consider the same question that the Holy Spirit asked me that day. Are you having successes without being successful? Is selfish ambition driving you to do large things in famous ways as fast as you can at the expense of becoming alive in his perfect, God-ordained, God-fitting purposes for your life? If so, well, then you and I can take some comfort in, in the fact that you, you and I are not the first of Jesus' disciples to experience that. We read in Mark 10 that Jesus is, is heading to Jerusalem one day with his disciples, and he's teaching them. And in this moment, James and John, they sense an opportunity for greatness. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and they said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. That's an ominous question, isn't it? Beware if your uh, young people ask you that. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. Jesus, we want to be seen. We want to be known. We want to be great. We want to be glorified with you. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with James and John. And so Jesus called them all together. And he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority? Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, and they're like, oh, this is it. This is the one. We've been walking for three years with Jesus, and we've been waiting to find out the secret to greatness, and he's about to unleash it to us. Seven steps to greatness. Here it comes. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. No, that can't, that's not right, surely. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even Jesus himself, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And just as we said right at the start, Jesus uses a different measuring stick for success. Jesus defines greatness in a totally different way. In in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Be careful not to practice your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then, as you read on in the sermon, he proceeds to use the words secret and unseen six times in just 15 minutes verses. Because for Jesus, obscurity and greatness are not opposites. Again, in his, in his book, Zach Esween asks us these questions. Do I possess a stamina for going unnoticed? Can I handle being overlooked? Do I have a spirituality that equips me to do an unknown thing for God's glory? Because friends, I want to tell you this. The call to follow Jesus is everything that our celebrity culture is not. And I wonder if today, maybe even now, maybe even today, you stand at a crossroads. And on the one hand is the wide gate, and many enter through it. Lots of people have been that way because through here is plaudits and power and popularity. Through here is recognition and and praise and celebrity. And even now I can hear the cries of my selfish ambition saying, go that way. I want to be noticed. But over here is a narrow gate. And not many have taken that path. For this is not the path to power, but the path to powerlessness. It's not the road to successes, but the road to servanthood. It's not the broad road of praise and popularity, but the narrow road of serving him in unseen ways and secret places. But if you still your heart, maybe you can hear him. Jesus waits for you there, ready to take your hand, ready to walk by your side down that narrow path. And sure, his whispers may be faint above the screams of our selfish ambition, but maybe you can hear him say to you, this, come, this is where you come alive. This is life in all its fullness. This is what you were born for. I wonder, will you travel that road? Will you nail your selfish ambition to the cross of Calvary today? Will you join the prayer of John the Baptist and say, he must increase and I must decrease? How many though the first part of that prayer is a lot easier to pray than the second part? Let's read one of the most subversive and revolutionary passages of Scripture in all the Bible, which tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition 
or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. I mean, this is radical. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. If we, if just us in this room did just that, can you imagine what would happen in your relationships with one another, had the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This, friends, is nothing short of a humility revolution. The greatest man in human history voluntarily submits himself to the most humiliating death in human history. And now everything is different. The kingdom of God has turned the world upside down. Honor has been redefined and greatness has been recast. And the shameful place is now the place of honor. The lowest place has become the high place. Could you imagine what would happen if we all lived like Jesus? The Hibbert Journal wrote this of uh, Gandhi, and maybe I could ask Tim to join me as I just draw this to a close. He wrote this about Gandhi. It said, Persons of power should be very careful how they deal with a man who cares nothing for sensual pleasure, nothing for riches, nothing for comfort or praise or promotion but is simply determined to do what he believes is right. He is a dangerous and uncomfortable enemy because his body, which you can always conquer, gives you little purchase on his soul. How dangerous would we be if we died to our selfish ambition? How radical would we be if each of us didn't look first to our own interests, but rather to the interests of one another. What if we were one another's greatest advocates? What if our Twitter feeds were full of the great things going on, not in our own ministries, but in everybody else's? What if we went into 2016, friends, filtering our decisions, not, not based on, on what's best for me and for, and for my ministry and for, and for my young people, but for one another. What if through humility we could discover true unity? Is it possible? Could we lay down our own ambition? Could we lay down, I wonder, our own chances of being noticed and celebrated for the sake of one another? Could we be this year more ambitious for one another than we are for ourselves. I wonder if you'd stand with me. Maybe, Tim, you'd play for us. And I want to share with you a prayer, and I wonder if you'd make it your own. And this prayer was a prayer that was found on the desk of a Zambian pastor, and this pastor had been martyred. And they found this bit of paper, and he'd written this prayer. And I wonder if I can ask you just to help me out by by shouting out uh, the bits that I've highlighted for you. Okay, 
I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees and colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, dwarf goals. Will you pray this with me and will you make it your prayer this year? I know longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. I lean in his presence. I walk by patience and I'm lifted with power and I labor uh, with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy or pander at the pool of popularity, meander at the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes. I must preach to all know and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me for my banner will be clear. And if you agree, say amen. Thanks everyone for listening. Don't forget to stay connected with Serious for God on Twitter at Serious for God, Facebook forward slash Serious for God, Instagram at Serious for God, Elim, YouTube, forward slash Serious for God UK. Also subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes every month on iTunes or however else you get your podcasts. And we'll look forward to connecting with you soon.